Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide podcast. It's been a little while since the last one, but don't let that give you the impression IPG has not been busy in the interim, working on the material for this and future editions of the IPG. In particular, IPG regular Santa Clara County DDA Jeff Rubin has been diligently researching the topic of impeachment with prior felony convictions and other conduct of moral turpitude. I'm Crystal Seiler. Like Jeff, I'm a prosecutor with Santa Clara County, and I'm here to help Jeff convey some of what he has learned. Before that, though, we need to take care of our MCLE qualifying obligations. This podcast will provide 75 minutes of general MCLE credit. Thanks for that introduction, Crystal. I have been hitting the books, and for those listeners who need or want to learn the law of impeachment with prior convictions and conduct of moral turpitude in the most enjoyable way possible, you have come to the right place. Okay, on that hyperbolic note, let's get started. Uh, Why don't we begin with the rules governing impeachment with prior felony convictions? Um, Once we have those covered, we can move on to impeachment with conduct of moral turpitude that did not result in a felony conviction. Well, that sounds like a grand plan. How should we proceed? Let's start with the basics. What is the authority that allows us to bring in a defendant's or other witness's prior felony conviction to impeach their credibility? Well, the statutory authority is Evidence Code Section 788. And it says, subject to certain exceptions, which we're going to be discussing later, for the purpose of attacking the credibility of a witness, it may be shown by the examination of the witness or by the record of the judgment that he has been convicted of a felony. Any felony? No. Although Section 788 itself doesn't put any limitation on what kind of felony can be used. And although the voters in California passed an initiative back in 1982 amending the California Constitution to say any prior felony conviction of any person in any criminal proceeding, whether adult or juvenile, shall subsequently be used without limitation for purposes of impeachment, the California Supreme Court held otherwise back in 1985 in a decision called People v. Castro. What did the California Supreme Court say in Castro? Well, it was a fractured opinion, but the plurality held the constitutional imperative of relevance. That's the term that they're using. Basically, it's due process. That imperative prohibits impeachment with felonies which do not connote moral laxity of any kind. And the only felonies that are relevant and potentially admissible are those that involve moral turpitude. And even felony convictions of moral turpitude can be excluded by the court if they are substantially more prejudicial than probative. Now, did the court in Castro define what they meant by a conviction involving moral turpitude? Yes. Although they recognize that using their definition to try and figure out what is a crime of moral turpitude may not always be easy. So how did they define it? They didn't give a concise definition. But many cases have summarized Castro's description of moral turpitude in the following way. They say, moral turpitude means a general readiness to do evil. It is an act of baseness, vileness, or depravity in the private and social duties which a man owes to his fellow man or to society in general, contrary to the customary rule of right and duty between man and man. Are they saying women cannot engage in acts of moral turpitude? No. In fact, the defendant in Castro was female. 
You can chalk up the gender insensitive language to the fact the courts are quoting from cases dating back a century. I guess that explains it without excusing it. Did Castro make any attempt to list the felonies that involve moral turpitude? No. But courts have made it clear that it's not limited to crimes bearing directly on dishonesty like perjury or theft. Keep in mind, the reason impeachment with a prior conviction of moral turpitude is allowed is because the prior conviction is supposed to reflect that the person has a character trait for dishonesty, is supposed to let the jury know that this person has a readiness to lie. Crimes like theft or fraud, you know, there it's easy to draw that inference. But other crimes which show a general readiness to do evil or which involve moral depravity of any kind also have some reason and tendency to shake one's confidence in the person's honesty. Thus, these other crimes of moral turpitude are also available for impeachment. Okay, so no master list of moral turpitude crimes from the court, but the bottom line with impeachment with prior convictions is that the crime has some bearing on the person's willingness to lie. Did the Castro court lay out a test for determining whether a crime can be used for impeachment? Kind of. They said that in assessing whether a crime is a crime of moral turpitude, you only look at the elements of the crime itself. You don't look at the underlying facts of the actual crime to determine if the crime is a crime of moral turpitude. It has to be looked at in the abstract based on the elements. That's why the test is called the least adjudicated elements test. So does that mean if, hypothetically, the crime could be committed in a way that doesn't involve any evil intent, then the crime can't be deemed a crime of moral turpitude? No, that kind of test it would be impossible to meet because, like, for example, a number of crimes the courts have found to be ones of moral turpitude can be viewed in some possible way as not involving an evil intent. So, like, take a look at voluntary manslaughter. That's considered a crime of moral turpitude, even though someone could be found guilty of that crime where they actually but unreasonably believe in the need for self-defense. That doesn't quite convey a sense of... Uh, evil intent. But what Castro and subsequent decisions have held is that the least adjudicated elements test means that from looking solely at the elements of the offense alone, without regard to the facts of the particular violation, can you reasonably infer the presence of moral turpitude? Are there any other areas of the law we can look to for guidance on where to draw the line between plain old crimes and crimes that bear on a person's willingness to lie? To a certain extent, yes. The Castro Court indicated we could look to some other areas of the law that also use the term moral turpitude. In the area of attorney discipline, crimes of moral turpitude can result in disbarment or imposition of discipline. In the area of federal immigration law, conviction for crimes of moral turpitude can result in deportation or have other immigration consequences. When Castro issued its opinion, they made a quick reference to both those areas of law as potentially providing some guidance. So can we look to cases in those areas of law to see if a crime has been determined to be one of moral turpitude? Uh, Not exactly. After Castro issued, courts of appeal pretty much uniformly rejected placing much reliance on cases involving attorney discipline and have regularly found that crimes that have been held not to constitute crimes of moral turpitude for attorney discipline cases are crimes of moral turpitude for impeachment purposes. Why is that? Well, for two reasons. 
First, in assessing moral turpitude for attorney discipline cases, the courts look at the underlying offense itself, unlike the least adjudicated elements test. Second, the question in attorney discipline cases, and by the way, in other areas of professional regulation that consider felony convictions and deciding whether to allow someone to practice a trade or be prevented from practicing, the, the, the focus is on whether or not the person is fit to practice. As these appellate courts pointed out, and more recently the California Supreme Court in an attorney discipline case pointed out, whether a conviction reflects upon an attorney's moral fitness to practice law is a far cry from whether such conviction has some relevance on the issue of a witness's credibility. For that reason, the California Supreme Court has retreated from its original position in Castro and now believes a moral turpitude finding in one context is not determinative on the issue of moral turpitude in the other. What about cases in the federal immigration context? You know, courts have been more open to considering decisions on whether a crime is a crime of moral turpitude for immigration purposes in deciding whether it's a crime of moral turpitude for purposes of impeachment. That is, uh, th- th- that's because basically in both contexts, courts make the determination by looking at the elements and not the underlying conduct. However, it's not really a two-way street. The federal courts don't think decisions on whether a crime is a crime of moral turpitude for state impeachment purposes provide guidance in assessing whether a crime is a crime of moral turpitude in the immigration context. It seems that federal courts in the Ninth Circuit, perhaps taken into consideration the impact of such a finding, have held that crimes that have been held to be crimes of moral turpitude for purposes of impeachment, like kidnapping or forcible false imprisonment, are not deemed crimes of moral turpitude for immigration purposes. All right. So what's our bottom line? Can we or can we not look to cases from these other contexts? Well, we definitely can consider immigration cases insofar as there has been a finding of moral turpitude, because their test is less expansive than our test for purposes of impeachment, but not in the reverse situation, where they have held a crime is not a crime of moral turpitude. Similarly, if a crime has been held to be a crime of moral turpitude in an attorney discipline case, and and the case makes it clear that it's the kind of crime that it's so egregious it would be considered a crime of moral turpitude no matter what the underlying facts, we can probably consider those decisions as well. But again, since attorney discipline cases have a narrower definition of moral turpitude, they can't be relied on when they come to the conclusion a crime is a crime of moral turpitude. Now, from a practical standpoint for busy attorneys, is there an easier way of figuring out whether a crime is a crime of moral turpitude in most cases? Yes. Since 1985, cases have been issuing published opinions on whether particular crimes are or are not crimes of moral turpitude. These decisions uh, by now cover the most commonly committed crimes, and we've compiled in a list uh, all these cases. It's included in the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide handout that accompanies this podcast. If you have a crime that you think might be a crime of moral turpitude, but has not yet been ruled on, you can at least look at how similar crimes have been considered by the courts for guidance. That's probably the best way to do it. If a court finds a felony conviction to be a conviction that necessarily involves moral turpitude, does that mean it's automatically admissible for impeachment? Nope, not even then. Showing the crime is one of moral turpitude is a prerequisite, but not a guarantee of admission. It's prima facie admissible, 
but a court still has the authority to exclude the prior if it decides that admission of the prior is substantially more prejudicial than probative. In other words, a court can exercise its power under Evidence Code Section 352 to keep the prior conviction out. What factors does a court look to in making the decision as to whether a felony conviction of necessarily involving moral turpitude is admissible over a 352 objection? Well, the court can, you know, basically, the courts have laid out four basic factors. Whether the conviction reflects on the witness's honesty or veracity, whether it is near or remote in time, whether it's for the same or similar conduct as a charged offense, and what effect its admission would have on the de- defendant's decision to testify. However, these factors are only to be considered as guiding rather than restraining the discretion of trial courts in applying Section 352 to prior convictions or for impeachment. In addition, other factors the courts have considered include the number of priors sought to be admitted, how important the credibility of the witness will be in the case, and whether the prior would be admissible for reasons other than impeachment anyway. The first factor you mentioned, the whether a conviction reflects on a witness's honesty or veracity, isn't that redundant once a court finds the crime is one of moral turpitude? Yes and no. Yes. Uh, if the conviction doesn't reflect on the witness's honesty or veracity, it's not going to be admissible. So, there, yeah, there is an overlap. But no, because not all crimes reflect equally on someone's readiness to lie. There are different levels of turpitude. Assault of conduct, like a murder or assault with a deadly weapon, are crimes of moral turpitude, but they don't necessarily bear as strongly on whether someone will lie as does a crime like fraud or perjury. So, a court in assessing whether to admit the crime can assess how probative the crime is in deciding whether to exclude it under 352. That said, a defendant or witness with a conviction for a crime of moral turpitude should not be viewed in the same way as a person with no history of such conduct. And courts repeatedly point out that no witness, including a defendant who elects to testify in his own behalf, is entitled to a false aura of veracity. And courts regularly and properly admit impeachment with crimes of moral turpitude that do not bear directly on dishonesty. Another factor you mentioned a court can consider is how remote in time the conviction occurred. Now, obviously, a crime that occurred a long time ago should have less probative value than a crime that occurred shortly before the person testifies. But how much time are we talking about? How remote is too remote for admission? There was no set point at which a conviction will be viewed as remote. And there isn't a consensus among courts as to how remote a conviction must be before it's considered too remote. At least one court has said there may be no conviction that is per se too remote to be used for impeachment. However, courts have also said a five-year-old conviction for a crime similar to the charged offense is not considered remote in time, whereas a conviction that's 20 years old certainly meets any reasonable threshold of remoteness. It wouldn't be too crazy to say that you know, any conviction more than 10 years old will be considered remote in the abstract, although definitely not too remote to be admitted. Numerous cases have improved impeachment with remote convictions, including convictions dating back 20 years. There's a case, uh, People v. Burns from 87, where the court mentioned five factors to consider in determining whether a prior conviction is too remote. These, uh, they 
they identified these five factors and said, one, the length of time that's elapsed since the conviction. Two, the length of sentence served on the prior conviction. Three, the nature of the conviction. Four, the age of the defendant at the time the previous crime was committed. And five, the defendant's conduct subsequent to the prior conviction. Are all these factors weighed equally? No. Cases that have issued since Burns have made it clear that when convictions date back a long time, the most important factor in determining whether the age of the conviction should weigh against admission is whether the defendant has led a legally blameless life since the time of the impeaching conviction. It has even been suggested that the staleness of an offense is generally relevant if and only if the defendant has led a blameless life in the interim. A witness's felony conviction that's remote in time might ordinarily have little or no bearing on the credibility of a witness who has since lived a commendable life. And the needle moves closer towards exclusion of the evidence under Section 352. But even a fairly remote prior conviction is admissible if the defendant has not led a legally blameless life since the time of the remote prior. So if the testifying defendant or witness has led a legally blameless life since the last conviction, but if that person was in custody for some or all of that time, does the lack of arrests or convictions for crimes in the intervening years still carry the same weight? No. If a defendant or witness was in custody for some or all of the years between the prior conviction and when they're testifying, the opportunity to commit additional crimes is diminished, and accordingly, so is the significance of the fact that they have led a blameless life in the intervening years. Now, you also mentioned courts should consider whether or not the impeaching crime is similar or identical to the charged offense when deciding whether to admit a conviction to impeach a testifying defendant. If the crime is similar, does that mean it is likely to be excluded? Well, it's a factor that weighs against admission because of the danger that the jury will not limit their consideration of the prior conviction to assessing the defendant's credibility, but will also think, well, he did it before, so he did it now, which would be an improper use of character evidence. That said, courts have made it clear that whether the crime is identical or similar, it's just not dispositive on whether it should be admitted. In the memo that accompanies this IPG, we cite uh, several cases where the courts, including the California Supreme Court, have upheld the admission of identical crimes for impeachment, even when the prior crime is a murder and the charged crime is a murder, and even in cases where they are impeached with multiple prior convictions identical to the charged crime. Will a similar prior conviction be more likely to be admitted if there is no dissimilar conviction available to impeach the defendant? Uh, conviction under the rationale that no witness is entitled to a false aura of veracity? Yes, and the converse may also be true. Where a dissimilar prior is available, there will be an inclination to use that prior instead of a similar conviction, assuming they're of equal probative value. Now, the fourth factor routinely mentioned in Castro and other cases is whether allowing the impeachment will dissuade the defendant from testifying. How significant is this factor? You know, before Castro came out, uh, we were governed by a different test for admissibility. Uh, And before Castro came out and then before a subsequent California Supreme Court came out in uh, 1986 called Collins, this factor was more significant. But when the California Supreme Court in Collins made it clear that failure to testify 
waives the ability to challenge the trial court's ruling on impeachment unless a defendant testifies uh, that the significance of this factor uh, plummeted. In fact, I, I did not come across any cases in the last 30 years where this factor was used as a basis for finding an abuse of discretion. And courts are generally skeptical of the reasons provided by attorneys for why impeachment would keep a defendant off the stand, considering that much more important reasons play a role in the attorney's decision to put his or her client on the stand, including that the defendant committed the crime, and if they testified, the whole case would sink. What role in the balancing test is the fact that the defendant or witness has multiple priors to play? It actually cuts both ways. I mean, it's very common for trial courts to, to basically force attorneys to pick and choose which of several potential prior felony convictions they want to use for impeachment under the belief that allowing in multiple convictions potentially increases the potential prejudice without significantly increasing the probative value of the, of the impeachment. But actually, this approach is inconsistent with the numerous cases that have held that there's a good reason to allow in multiple convictions under the rationale that a series of crimes evidencing moral turpitude is more probative of defendants' willingness to give perjured testimony than a single offense. There is no automatic limitation on the number or nature of prior convictions of crimes involving moral turpitude that may use to uh, impeach a witness. And courts have repeatedly held the admission of numerous priors to impeach, even if the priors are similar, is, uh, is okay. We cite several cases in the accompanying memo where a defendant was impeached with half a dozen prior convictions. And in People v. Mendoza, a case from 2000, an appellate court indicated that allowing a defendant to be impeached with all of his 10 priors might not be appropriate. But limiting impeachment of a defendant to only one or two priors would have given him a false aura of veracity because it would suggest that defendant had led a generally legally blameless life, whereas he had not been able to be crime-free for any significant period of time in the 20 years that were involved in that case. It also makes a difference how important the credibility of the witness or defendant is to the case, right? Yes. Uh, the greater the significance of the person's credibility, the more important it is to allow impeachment. What about the situation where a prior conviction is coming in for some other reason? For example, pursuant to evidence code section 1108 as propensity evidence or as the underlying felony for a charge of being a felon in possession of a firearm. Does this affect the decision of whether to admit the prior for impeachment? Of course, because it obliterates the primary concern over prejudice that accrues from the jury hearing about the prior, since the jury is going to hear about it anyway. Is the test for determining whether to allow impeachment of a witness different than the one for determining whether to allow impeachment of a defendant? Yes. The concern for prejudice uh, dramatically drops off. Courts don't have to consider whether the defendant will testify from fear of being impeached, nor do they have to consider in that case whether the prior is similar to the charged crime. When it's just a witness, the main factors for the court to consider is whether the conviction reflects on honesty and whether it's near in time. Who has the burden of establishing the prior conviction is more prejudicial than probative? You know, I'm not sure that the question is completely relevant, considering that whether the crime is admitted or excluded is entirely within the court's discretion. But 
to the extent a burden exists, the proponent of using the prior con- of using the prior conviction for impeachment would likely have the burden of showing it's a crime of moral turpitude. And then once they make that prima facie showing, the burden would shift to the party opposing impeachment to show why it is substantially more prejudicial than probative under the test of Evidence Code Section 352. As prosecutors, should we be concerned if a court rules a prior admissible without making any record of the reasons for the ruling? The record has to affirmatively show that the trial judge did, in fact, weigh prejudice against probative value. But nothing more than that is required. A judge doesn't have to expressly weigh prejudice against probative value or even expressly state that he or she has done so. But, you know, naturally, it would be the better practice for a trial judge to make a clear record of its weighing process. And prosecutors shouldn't be shy about making sure there is some evidence in the record that shows a trial judge engaged in some kind of balancing. Now, can a defendant prevent impeachment with a prior felony conviction on the ground it's an invalid conviction? Yes, but they can only do it in the trial court if the claim is that the conviction is constitutionally invalid on the ground defendant was not adequately advised of his Boykin Tall rights, which are the privilege against compulsory self-incrimination, the right to trial by jury, and the right to confront his accusers. The defendant cannot challenge the prior conviction if it's based on a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel or a claim that the prior is invalid for some non-constitutionally based reason in the trial court that's uh, where the witness or the defendant is going to be testifying. So does the prosecutor have to prove the validity of the conviction before inquiring about it? No. Unless there's a defense objection to use of the prior conviction on this ground, the prosecutor can just ask about it uh, without having to establish its constitutional validity. Can the defense challenge the admission of a prior conviction as constitutionally invalid if the issue before the court is whether to allow impeachment of a defense witness instead of the defendant? Or could we challenge the prior conviction if the witness being impeached was a prosecution witness? You know, I've never seen uh, that actually attempted, but, but possibly. When should the ruling on whether a defendant can be impeached with a prior conviction be made? All the cases involving the issue of impeachment assume that the litigation over the admissibility of a prior conviction should take place in advance of impeachment. In other words, an attorney should not spring the impeachment on the witness without a decision ahead of time that it's proper to use the impeachment. As a practical matter, the best and, in my experience, the most common practice is to litigate the admissibility of a prior conviction as well as other conduct potentially usable for impeachment as a motion and eliminate before jury selection. This allows the attorneys to tailor their litigation strategy in light of the ruling, question the jurors about the potential impact of the prior convictions, and address the impeaching convictions in opening statement. It also makes it easier for attorneys to decide whether to expend time and resources in obtaining whatever evidence is necessary to perfect the impeachment. That said, There are no cases that specifically say the determination of whether to allow impeachment of a defendant should be made pretrial, and there are two cases suggesting that the best time to make that determination is at the close of the people's case in chief. Now, those cases don't preclude an earlier determination. Really, they're focused on the question of whether a trial court can and should defer ruling on the motion until after a defendant has testified. 
in the more recent case, a case called People versus Washington from uh, 1989, the appellate court strongly recommended that a court make the decision before the defendant testifies. And they give lots of reasons for, for why that is. But they also recognized that a court has the discretion to wait until after the defendant does testify in direct. Why would a court ever want to wait until after a defendant testifies? Well, the reasoning is, is that how necessary the impeachment is, how probative, turns in part on the defendant's defense, also how prejudicial. If the defendant's credibility is crucial to his defense, that's a factor that should be considered in determining whether or not to allow impeachment. But until the defendant testifies, a court may not know the defense. So the idea is it can't properly engage in the weighing process. It seems like both parties would want to know in advance if the defendant can be impeached. Is there a way around this problem if a trial court wants to delay that decision for that very reason? Yes. In the earlier appellate decision, the court recommended that if a trial court were inclined to rule on the admissibility of a prior conviction before the defendant testified, but felt uncomfortable in doing so because they felt they didn't have sufficient information to make the ruling until after the defendant testified, uh, a party can ask the defendant, uh, the court to allow the defendant to testify to his version of events in an in-camera hearing or, in the alternative, make an offer of proof outside the presence of the jury, summarizing what uh, the testimony would be. However, in light of the fact that reciprocal discovery is now part of the California Constitution, that earlier appellate decision had come out before Prop uh, 115 passed in the early 90s, adding uh, the uh, reciprocity aspect uh, of discovery to the uh, California Constitution. In light of that, it may not be as necessary to hold the hearing in camera, but again, we're, we're in an area of speculation. There's not a lot of case law on it. If a court gives a tentative ruling that the impeachment will not be permitted if a defendant testifies, can the court change that ruling after the defendant testifies? Probably, if it's a tentative ruling. However, a recent appellate court case called People v. Hall from 2018 held it was error for a trial court to make a definitive ruling that a prior conviction is inadmissible and then completely reverse the ruling after the defendant has made Uh, the irrevocable choice to testify. Now, if a felony conviction is used for impeachment, can counsel inquire about the facts underneath the prior conviction? It depends on the circumstances. Generally, the longstanding rule is that if a witness is being impeached with a prior felony conviction, the scope of inquiry does not extend to the facts of the underlying offense. The rule has been you can only introduce or ask about the name or type of crime and the date and place of conviction. The long-standing rule is subject to a long-standing exception, which is that if the witness has first attempted to mislead the jury or minimize the facts of the prior offense, then the underlying facts can be inquired about as necessary to correct any misimpression. However, the foundation for that long-standing rule, the rule, not the exception, is considerably shakier than it used to be. Why is that? Because back in 1982, voters passed Proposition 8. Now, Proposition 8 enacted uh, a new article, uh, rather, a a new section of Article 1 of Section 28 of the California Constitution. It was called the Right Right to Truth and Evidence Provision. 
and it's it's currently codified as uh, subdivision F2. It provides in pertinent part that relevant evidence shall not be excluded in any criminal proceeding. And subdivision F4 of section 28, which was also enacted at the same time, although when it was enacted, it wasn't F4, it allows prior felony convictions to be used without limitation for purposes of impeachment. Now, based on Proposition 8, the California Supreme Court in People v. Wheeler in 1992 held the witness or defendant could be impeached with misconduct that did not result in a felony conviction. Now, Wheeler didn't address the impact of its holding on the earlier general rule I was talking about. And the California Supreme Court has issued relatively recent opinions since then using uh, somewhat inconsistent language about what the status is of the general rule. A recent Court of Appeal decision, however, uh, has attempted to lay out what the current standard is. What case is that? It's the case of Gutierrez, and I think they got it right. The Gutierrez Court held the inescapable conclusion of the holding in Wheeler is that now conduct underlying a felony conviction is admissible when it's relevant to impeach a witness unless the trial court finds it's more prejudicial than probative. So then we can use the evidence underlying the prior conviction. To a certain extent. In Gutierrez, the trial court allowed impeachment with a felony evading conviction, a violation of Vehicle Code Section 2800.2. Now, the defendant was convicted of that offense, but as it turns out, the vehicle that he used to evade, he had actually stolen. And when it came to cross-examination, the prosecutor impeached the defendant by asking, isn't it true you took the vehicle without the owner's permission? Now, on appeal, the defendant argued, hey, this was improper impeachment with conduct underlying the felony conviction. The Gutierrez appellate court said, look, the general rule still governs. When a prior felony conviction has been introduced to impeach, ordinarily, the trial court should exclude evidence of the underlying conduct. This is because, in many instances, the conduct underlying a felony adds nothing to the probative value of the felony, while at the same time it increases the prejudicial effect. For example, the court said that the fact that a murder was committed with a knife would have no additional bearing on whether the defendant might lie on the stand beyond what the mere fact of the prior conviction for murder would establish. Yet it would tend to repulse the jury and taint its evaluation of the testimony. Likewise, the bare fact that a witness has a prior conviction for robbery is sufficient to show dishonesty. It's not necessary to elicit additional details regarding the amount of force or fear involved or the nature of the property taken. That's more likely to be more prejudicial than probative. So what the Gutierrez court was saying was, look, it's not so much that the, the rationale for the general rule hasn't changed. It's now basically, yeah, the general rule is your fallback position, but you use 352 uh, to undergird that proposition. In other words, that's the reason why you wouldn't allow in the evidence of the underlying conduct. But the Gutierrez court also went on to hold that where, as in the case that they were handling, the conduct underlying the felony added significant probative value, 
It's admissible. The court said that while the prior felony conviction for evading a police officer in violation of Section 2800.2 is a crime of moral turpitude, that crime does not particularly show dishonesty, whereas the underlying fact that the defendant took the car without the owner's consent substantially augmented the showing of dishonesty. Are there any other circumstances where the underlying facts of the felony conviction can be elicited? There is another case out there. Uh, it's a case called People versus Thomas from 1988, where the court, where <coughs> the court uh, in observed that a defendant should be allowed to elicit from witnesses those rare extenuating circumstances that might negate the moral turpitude ordinarily associated with the offense. The court reasoned that the prosecutor may not question the witness about the underlying details of the prior conviction, but that this restriction is for the protection of the defendant, who should be permitted to waive the protection if his explanation will tend to minimize the inference of moral turpitude, otherwise deducible from the fact of the conviction. But the restriction isn't just about protecting the defendant. The rule applies to witnesses as well. Isn't the rationale behind the rule also to prevent the trial from descending into a mini-trial on the impeachment? Yes. And in a much more recent unpublished decision from the same division as the court in Thomas, the appellate court questioned the dictum in Thomas to the extent it suggested that criminal defendants have a greater right to explain the circumstances of their prior convictions than do other witnesses in a criminal trial. In other words, witnesses should be allowed to testify about the facts underlying the prior conviction in the same rare circumstances where a defendant would be able to do so. Although, consideration of prejudice to a criminal defendant might well affect the balancing under Section 352 of whether to allow the parties to get into these underlying facts. That would really open up the cross-examination of the witness or the defendant. And wouldn't that end up, that end up circumventing the whole idea of limiting the impeachment to the felony conviction to avoid many trials? That's a good point. But since even the general rule allowed cross-examination if the defendant or witness tried to minimize the significance of the prior conviction, really the general rule sort of assumed that the defendant or witnesses could try to get into the underlying facts. So what would you advise on this topic? Well, if you're planning to introduce a prior conviction or simply ask about a prior conviction, stick with the general rule, unless... As in Gutierrez, there are some facts that add significant probative value to the conviction. When you think about it, we know for sure, uh, subject to a 352 objection, under the California Supreme Court decision in Wheeler, that we can impeach with crimes that didn't even result in a conviction. So all that really happened in Gutierrez was that the prosecution impeached with a different criminal act that didn't result in a conviction, the the stolen uh, car uh, crime. The trickier question is whether we or the defense could choose to avoid introducing a prior felony conviction and simply attempt to impeach with the underlying facts because we or the defense counsel think the underlying facts makes the conduct look worse than just referring to it as the generic crime. So what's the answer? I suspect while it might technically and legally be permitted a court would probably exercise its 352 authority to say that impeachment is limited to proving the conviction itself or asking about the conviction, because that is the most efficient way to get out the information. Now, you mentioned earlier that introducing a prior conviction under Evidence Code Section 788 to impeach the credibility of a witness is a form of impeachment with character evidence. Would the defendant then be able to introduce character evidence showing honesty and rehabilitation that occurred after the prior conviction in response? Yes. Uh, Keep in mind that even 
without Section 788, a defendant can and could introduce opinion and reputation character evidence to prove a character trait, including a character trait for honesty, under Section 1102 of the Evidence Code. But in the case of People v. March, an appellate case that issued after Prop 8, but before the holding in Wheeler, the court stated the provision of Proposition 8 stating relevant evidence shall not be excluded in any criminal proceeding, that provision allowed the defendant who had been impeached with a prior conviction to introduce evidence that he had been given probation for the offense, that he had not been arrested in the nine years following the offense, and that he was rehabilitated. That is, the Marsh Court essentially allowed the defendant to introduce character evidence that didn't fall into the category of opinion or reputation evidence. Now, the case of Marsh preceded the case of Wheeler, but the rationale for allowing this type of evidence in Marsh was basically the same rationale for allowing impeachment with conduct of moral turpitude to be admitted to either support or enhance the credibility of a witness as described in Wheeler. Now, basically, post-pop bait, it's relevant evidence. What about convictions where a defendant hasn't been sentenced yet or uh, for which the appeal of the conviction isn't final? Can we use those to impeach? Yes. A conviction offered for impeachment purposes is based on when the defendant or witness was convicted by the jury or entered a guilty plea. It does not make a difference if the defendant or witness has not yet been sentenced and doesn't make a difference whether or not the case is still pending on appeal. Can a conviction that occurred after the crime being prosecuted be used to impeach? Yes. It doesn't make a difference if the conviction occurred before the crime for which the defendant is on trial. It just has to have occurred before the defendant testifies or the witness testifies. Now, would that same rationale apply when it comes to impeachment with underlying conduct? Yes. If the prior offered for impeachment was subject to a pardon, can it be used to impeach? Well, Evidence Code Section 788A specifically deals with this, and it says, a witness may not be impeached with a conviction where a pardon based on his innocence has been granted to the witness by the jurisdiction in which he was convicted. However, if the conviction was pardoned for reasons other than because of the witness's innocence of the crime, the pardon may still be used for impeachment purposes, albeit the fact the pardon itself would also be admissible. And while the fact of the witness's conviction would be excluded if the witness had received a direct pardon based on the finding the witness was innocent, the conduct underlying the conviction arguably may still be admissible, subject to evidence code section 352, for purposes of impeachment. Though, uh, the fact the witness has received a pardon based on innocence will undoubtedly be a factor weighing heavily in favor of excluding it, uh, the, the conviction itself, or the underlying conduct, uh, pursuant to section uh, 352. What about a conviction when a person has received a certificate of rehabilitation and pardon? Can we use that to impeach someone? No. Uh, Again, in 788 itself, subdivision B, it provides that a witness may not be impeached with a conviction where a certificate of rehabilitation and pardon pursuant to uh, Penal Code Section 4852.01 at SEC has been granted to the witness. However, like with a pardon based on innocence, Even if the fact of the witness's conviction would be excluded, the conduct underlying the conviction arguably may still be admissible for purposes of impeachment. Though, once again, the fact that the witness has received a certificate of rehabilitation and pardon uh, 
requires the person to have lived an honest and upright life. It requires the person to have conducted him or herself with sobriety and industry and requires them to have exhibited good moral character and obeyed the law of the land. And so the fact that the person received a certificate of rehab and pardon will undoubtedly be a favor weighing heavily in favor uh, of excluding either the underlying conduct or the conviction itself pursuant to evidence code section 352. What about when a witness has received relief from conviction pursuant to Penal Code Section 1203.4? Under 1203.4, it releases persons who have been placed on probation from all penalties and disabilities resulting from the offense of which he or she has been convicted. And does that prevent the use of the prior under Section 788? Yeah, Section 788 also discusses a grant of relief under 1203.4. 1203.4 is a way that someone can uh, obtain and avoid some of the penalties and disabilities of the conviction. Under 788, the granting of 1203.4 relief prevents a defendant from being impeached with the conviction if the defendant is a witness in a criminal or civil case. But significantly, not if the defendant takes a stand in his own defense in a subsequent criminal trial. Now, can the person who received the relief be impeached with the underlying conduct? Back in 1995, there was a case called People versus Field, and where the appellate court held that Proposition 8 did not abrogate 788C's prohibition on the use of a conviction subject to relief for purposes of impeaching witnesses because they found Proposition 8 simply states all relevant evidence is admissible and a conviction subject to 1203.4 relief is no longer relevant. So can the person be impeached with the underlying conduct? Maybe. Under People versus Wheeler, we know that the conduct underlying the conviction might still be admissible, again, always subject to 352 for purposes of impeachment. On the other hand, it may not be admissible. If you consider the reasoning of people versus field that a conviction subject to relief is no longer relevant because a conviction is only relevant to credibility if it involves moral turpitude, and the legislative purpose behind section 1203.4 relief is that no convicted person discharged after probation should be regarded as one possessed of the degree of turpitude likely to affect his credibility as a witness. In other words, that's the rationale. If section 1203.4 relief not only vitiates the conviction, but also reflects a legislative determination that the person should not be treated as lacking in credibility, you can craft a reasonable argument that such relief would also render the underlying conduct irrelevant to credibility. But it's an open question. So because it's an open question, should a prosecutor be cautious in seeking to impeach a defense witness with the conduct that's underlying a conviction subject to a 1203.4 relief? Yes, And if a prosecution witness has received Section 1203.4 relief, the prosecutor should seek a specific finding from the court that the underlying conduct is excludable pursuant to Section 352 instead of simply arguing that neither the conviction nor the underlying conduct are admissible to impeach pursuant to Section 788. Jeff, there are a lot of statutes that give defendants convicted under different circumstances the kind of relief granted by 1203.4. 
Uh, for example, 1203.41 gives comparable relief to defendants who have been sentenced to local prison time under Penal Code Section 1170H. But nothing in Section 788 makes mention of these other kinds of relief. So can a conviction that has been subject to these other kinds of relief be used for impeachment? Yeah, there are about half a dozen of these uh, statutes that are similar to 1203.4. But since none of them are mentioned as exempting priors from being used under Section 788, they still may be used to impeach. Also, the conduct underlying the conviction that has been subject to relief may also be used. But of course, the fact the person has received such relief may be considered by a court in deciding whether to allow the impeachment under Evidence Code Section 352. Ironically, under Subdivision D of Section 788, if the person has been relieved of the penalties and disabilities arising from a conviction pursuant to a procedure substantially equivalent to Section 1203.4 in another state, that conviction would be treated the same as if Section 1203.4 relief has been granted. That's built right into the statute itself. Sometimes an attorney will ask a court to sanitize a prior felony conviction by keeping the specific nature of the crime from the jury in whole or in part. For example, a court could require that the conviction simply be referred to as, quote, unnamed felony involving moral turpitude, unquote, or a, quote, felony non-theft related crime, unquote, or reduced even further to a prior felony conviction. Trial courts most commonly choose to sanitize a prior conviction when it is for a crime that is the same as or very similar to the crime for which the defendant's on trial or when the prior is for a particularly odious crime like child molestation. The general rationale for doing so is to avoid jurors using the prior as evidence of predisposition, i.e. because of the inevitable pressure on lay jurors to believe if he did it before he probably did so this time. In general, is sanitizing a prior a good idea? No. First of all, there is no requirement that a court must sanitize a prior felony conviction, even if the prior offense is similar or identical to the charged crime. Second of all, sanitizing a prior conviction has some significant downsides. And this may help explain why no published post-Castro court has held a refusal to sanitize a prior, even for an identical crime, was an abuse of discretion. And you got to consider, the whole purpose of allowing impeachment is so the jury can assess whether the person testifying is the type of person who would lie under oath. By keeping jurors in the dark about the nature of the crime, the jurors are deprived of the very information necessary to make that assessment. Because the strength of the inference that a person convicted of a crime of moral turpitude uh, can vary. I mean, the strength of this inference regarding dishonesty can vary according to the nature of the crime. The identity of the prior felony is essential to the conduct of the jury deliberations. They can't weigh the probative value of the defendant's particular prior offense unless they know what the offense is. So when you tell a jury that a defendant's been convicted of a felony, that is, to quote from a California Supreme Court case called People v. Rollo, it's to furnish them with a largely meaningless fragment of information. It is highly unlikely that a jury, which is told only that the defendant has been convicted of a felony, is going to let the matter rest. Normal human curiosity will inevitably lead to brisk speculation, I'm quoting, on the nature of that conviction, and the range of such speculation will be limited solely by the imaginations of the individual jurors. Some may assume, for example, that the prior conviction was similar or identical to the charge for which he's on trial. 
Others may speculate the conviction involves some form of unspeakable conduct. So there are just a ton of reasons why you should not be sanitizing these prior convictions. Now, Jeff, when you get a chance to take a step off your soapbox, uh, I have a few more questions for you. Nice. By the way, if a court is going to sanitize a prior conviction at the request of defense counsel, prosecutors should make sure it's clear on the record that it was sanitized at the defense request because sometimes defendants will claim that they've been prejudiced by the way the prior conviction was sanitized. Should prosecutors ever seek to sanitize a prior conviction? Well, look, if a trial court believes and is inclined to exclude a prior conviction from being used to impeach a defendant or defense witness because they think the prior is too prejudicial to be used, then, yeah, you should ask for sanitizing as as a fallback position. And if it's going to be sanitized, how should a prior be sanitized? There is no set specific way, but it is a particularly terrible idea to simply have the conviction referred to as a crime of moral turpitude. Uh, Why is that? I've seen judges repeatedly do it that way. Because jurors have no idea what moral turpitude means. And more often than not, they're going to ask for a definition of the term. In fact, included in the handout that accompanies this IPG, I put in a case called People versus Little, which you can reference when you're making your argument for why it shouldn't be sanitized by way of referring to the conviction as a crime of moral turpitude. In that case, the appellate court notes a trial court's observation, quote, that, the, that when the only thing that is said is that the defendant was previously convicted of a crime of moral turpitude, the jury almost always asks what a crime of moral turpitude is. There are also plenty of unpublished opinions verifying this common phenomena. So if not that way, how should a prior be sanitized? Well, if it is going to be sanitized, keep in mind, the more generic the description, the less likely the jurors will understand its relevance, and the more likely it is the jurors will speculate. If the crime involves theft or fraud, it's probably safest to refer to the conviction as a felony involving theft or, or fraud because jurors are more likely to understand its relevance. Or better yet, refer to it as a crime in which the defendant or witness exhibited a willingness to lie. This description makes it easier for the attorneys to explain why it's relevant to credibility and helps minimize speculation about the crime being so heinous that it must remain unidentified. If the prior conviction is a crime involving assaultive or other behavior, in other words, a more indirect way of looking at whether or not the witness is dishonest, then it should be safe to refer to the conviction as one involving a general readiness to do evil or as a crime from which a readiness to lie can be inferred. But regardless of how it's described, prosecutors need to explain in closing argument the reason that the crime was admitted. In other words, the reason that it was admitted is because it bears on the person's credibility. So the jury understands that we're not just bringing out this prior conviction to show the defendant's a bad person, and that's why you should be convicting the person. Now, hypothetically, if a judge doesn't follow your recommendation, how should moral turpitude be defined for the jury, either before or after they ask for a definition? Well, it's more reality than hypothetical that uh, they're not going to follow the recommendation. But in the hand that accompanying this podcast, I've listed a bunch of published and unpublished cases where the courts have upheld the language used to define moral turpitude. For my money, if you're not going to tell them what the crime is, at least give them an explanation as to why the crime's even relevant. If the prior conviction is a crime in which dishonesty is an element, 
The term moral turpitude may safely be defined as a crime in which the defendant or witness exhibited a willingness to lie. That's what moral turpitude is. If the prior conviction is a crime that indicates a general readiness to do evil from which the readiness to lie can be inferred, then that's how it should be described, or that's how the term moral turpitude should be defined. If a court rules that a prior conviction is coming in against a witness, can the party who's calling the witness preempt the impeachment by bringing out the prior conviction first? Yeah. Eliciting the fact that a witness has suffered a prior conviction by the party calling the witness on direct in order basically to soften the blow or take the sting out of the impeachment and control how the evidence is going to be received. Uh, That may not technically fit into the definition of impeachment, but courts routinely accept it as proper. And in fact, the California Supreme Court has even recommended this tactic as a prudent course if impeachment is going to occur. When a witness or a defendant is impeached with a prior felony conviction, is the court required to give a a limiting instruction um, regarding the use of the prior conviction for purposes of impeachment? You know, notwithstanding some comments uh, to the limiting instruction that's described in uh, Calgic when it comes to uh, prior convictions offered for impeachment, even though in that comment they indicate there's a split of opinion as to whether or not the instruction is a sua sponte instruction that must be given without request, there is actually no current split of opinion. If you look at the note to Calcrim and you actually look at the case law, it's clear the California Supreme Court has held there is no sua sponte duty to instruct with the limiting instruction. It has to be given if one of the parties requests it. And because a defendant can always make a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel if their attorney doesn't request the instruction, prosecutors should probably ask for it every time a prior or conduct of moral turpitude is offered solely for impeachment. As a practical matter, how do you go about impeaching a defendant or a witness with a prior felony conviction? You know, 788 actually lays it out for us. It says uh, there are two ways to impeach. The first is by asking the witness, have you been convicted of a felony uh, to wit you know, X, Y, and Z? And the second is simply introducing a record of the judgment of conviction. Okay, so those were impeachment with felony convictions. Let's talk a little bit about impeachment with evidence other than a felony conviction. Can we impeach with misdemeanor convictions of moral turpitude? No. But focus on the term conviction. A conviction is considered hearsay as to the underlying conduct. There is no evidence code section like 788 that specifically creates an exception to the hearsay rule for misdemeanor convictions. And 788 is a a hearsay exception to the rule because a conviction, when it's offered to prove the underlying conduct, is hearsay. So while we can use the official records exception to prove the fact of a conviction, the conviction itself does not prove the character trait of dishonesty because it doesn't prove the person engaged in the underlying conduct. In fact, in the case of Wheeler, which authorized the use of underlying conduct to impeach a witness, the court specifically said, misdemeanor convictions would not be admissible over a hearsay objection. Currently, however, that is not a real problem. Why isn't it? Because after Wheeler issued, the legislature passed Evidence Code Section 452.5. And we can basically accomplish what we need to accomplish through that section, which permits the use of a certified official record of a conviction, including a misdemeanor conviction, to prove both the fact of the conviction and the conduct underlying the conviction. So we can ask the witness if they've committed the underlying offense, 
And if they deny it, we can use Section 452.5 to introduce the prior conviction to prove the underlying conduct, albeit only in a generic sense, because that's all the conviction shows. Can we ask if the witness has been convicted of a misdemeanor offense? No. It's a little bit of a semantical issue, but we can't specifically ask whether or not they've been convicted of a misdemeanor offense. And the reason we can't was explained in a case called People versus Cadigan. And the rationale is when we're asking a person if they've been convicted of a misdemeanor offense, we're asking the person to, to recount hearsay, the fact of the conviction, what the court said. Okay, you're now convicted. I find you guilty of such and such offense. In other words, we are asking the person to assert he was convicted, which is hearsay as to the underlying offense. Now, Section 452.5 allows us to overcome a hearsay objection by introducing the certified record. But simply asking the person to recount the conviction is not what Section 452.5 authorizes. That's not the way to prove it under 452.5. So just make sure when you're asking not to ask, were you convicted of a misdemeanor offense? Just say, did you commit the offense of theft or whatever the crime is? The witness can answer yes, because that's within the witness's own personal knowledge. It's not asking for hearsay. And if a witness is a defendant, you can even ask, did you admit in a judicial proceeding you committed the offense of theft, or did you plead guilty to the crime of theft? That's not hearsay either. Well, it's hearsay, but it's subject to an exception, which is evidence code section 1220, which allows an admissions of defendants. And so... You can convey exactly what you need to convey without technically asking if they've been convicted. What about proving of juvenile adjudications? Adjudications. Can we impeach a witness with a juvenile adjudication? You know, that can be a little harder. There is case law out there, which is cited in the uh, handout which accompanies this IPG podcast, that permits impeachment with facts underlying the juvenile adjudication. But like a misdemeanor conviction... The juvenile adjudication itself is hearsay as to the underlying conduct. And Section 452.5 doesn't help in this regard because an adjudication is not considered a conviction. And Section 452.5 only allows the exception to be used when using convictions to prove up underlying conduct. Even introducing the adjudication as an official record does not help because only the adjudication is being proved. Again, not the underlying conduct. So how can we impeach a witness who committed a crime that was adjudicated in juvenile court? Well, assuming you get a court's permission by filing a petition under 827 of the Welfare and Institutions Code to get to that information, you can prove it up by bringing in the witnesses to court. Of course, of course if, if that's the only way to prove it, a court's going to be reluctant to allow you to do so because that can be time-consuming and can be confusing. They may exercise their 352 powers. When it comes to deciding whether to allow in conduct of moral turpitude that didn't result in a felony conviction over a 352 objection, courts are instructed not only to take into account the factors that are used when deciding to admit a felony conviction, but they also have to take into account the fact that such misconduct is generally less probative of an immoral character or dishonesty. And also, they have to take into account that it will involve problems of proof, unfair surprise, and also the evaluation of what constitutes moral turpitude in an area where it's 
even less clear than when you have a felony conviction. Is there a less time-consuming alternative? Yes. So let's say your witness is the defendant in the case. And way back, he admitted committing a crime in juvenile court. You can ask the defendant if he admitted to the crime in a juvenile proceeding. This is permitted because his admission in that proceeding would also be considered an admission under Evidence Code Section 1220 in the pending proceeding. So it overcomes the hearsay problem because it falls under the exception for admissions. And if the defendant denies it, then you can introduce the official record of the juvenile proceeding to prove there was such an admission. And you might even be able to introduce the official record up front, not to show the defendant committed the crime, but because the record would be evidence that the defendant admitted he committed the crime. It's uh, a subtle but significant difference. What if the defendant didn't admit guilt, but instead entered a plea of no contest to juvenile court? You know, Crystal, I used to think that there was no such thing as a plea of no contest in juvenile court. And even if there was such a thing, no contest pleas do not technically admit guilt, so they couldn't qualify as an admission under Evidence Code Section 1220. But after doing the research, I realized I was wrong on both counts. Actually, there's a California rule of court, Rule 5.778E, also mentioned in the handout, permit, and that rule permits no contest pleas in juvenile court. And pursuant to Penal Code Section 1016, it states specifically the legal effect of such a plea, a no contest plea, to a crime punishable as a felony shall be the same as that of a plea of guilty for all purposes, and for all purposes but a civil case for a crime punishable as a misdemeanor. Thus, it is no less of an admission for purposes of Evidence Code Section 1220 than a guilty plea, and should be able to be used to prove up the commission of the guilt by asking the defendant if he entered a no-contest plea to the relevant crime of moral turpitude. And I've included cases uh, to support this proposition in the accompanying IPG handout. Do we have to worry about any confrontation clause issues? I know that some courts have indicated a guilty plea or a no-contest plea would be considered testimonial hearsay. Well, that wouldn't be a problem if the witness is a defendant, because even if the statement were somehow considered testimonial hearsay, the person who made the statement, in other words, the defendant who's being impeached, is available for cross-examination. And and if they're available for cross-examination, that's all the confrontation clause requires. Okay, but what about if the witness being impeached is not a defendant uh, so that the not guilty or no contest plea does not qualify as admission as an admission in the trial where the witness is testifying? Well, that gets a little bit trickier. We can't get in the witness's statement in juvenile court where the witness admitted that they committed the offense in the trial in which they're being impeached because it wouldn't qualify as an admission in the trial in which they're being impeached under 1220 because they're not a party. And we can't get it in either as a declaration against interest because that exception requires the declarant to be unavailable. And obviously, if the witness is testifying, they would be uh, available. So in that case, we would have to ask the witness if they committed the crime. And then if they denied it, we would have to be prepared to prove it up Uh, presumably with the underlying uh, juvenile adjudication record, which shows that they admitted the offense. And we could arguably put that in as a prior 
actually more than arguably, we should be able to put it in as a prior inconsistent statement. Now, can we even ask the question if we didn't have the witnesses ready to prove it up? That is a good question in and of itself. The general rule is that it's improper for a prosecutor to ask questions which suggest the existence of facts harmful to the defense unless the prosecutor has a good faith belief that the questions will be answered in the affirmative or that the underlying facts can be proved. Since we're going to be litigating this motion ahead of time, we are going to be putting the defense on notice we intend to ask about the offense. And if at that time they don't claim the defendant or their witness is going to deny the offense, I think we have a reasonable good faith belief that it will not be denied. However, if the defense claims the witness will deny the offense, then I think we have to be ready to prove it up in order to ask the question. But if the witness has actually been convicted or adjudicated guilty, how can any attorney come in and claim the witness will deny committing the offense? All attorneys, defense attorneys, and prosecutors in criminal law have a duty of candor. True, but if the conduct did not result in a conviction or adjudication, then we're going to have to get the witnesses to prove it up. And because courts are going to be very reluctant to allow us to litigate disputed criminal misconduct, the impeachment is unlikely to occur. Can we impeach a defendant or a witness with conduct of moral turpitude if the conduct isn't criminal? So, for example, if the person engaged in deceptive behavior or lied about something. Yes, there are cases allowing impeachment with non-criminal conduct of moral turpitude. But, and this is a big but, I have not come across any published case that has allowed such impeachment where the conduct was disputed. It's just simply too much effort for the minor probative value such evidence would have. Can a prosecutor ask a witness if they have been arrested or charged with a crime in order to impeach the witness? No, that's longstanding law. That's prohibited because neither the arrest nor the charging actually proves the underlying conduct. Okay, let me ask you a few questions about impeaching a hearsay declarant with convictions or prior misconduct. Can the prosecution or the defense impeach a non-testifying declarant of a hearsay declaration admitted into evidence, such as a declaration against interest, with the declarant's prior conviction or misconduct? Yes. Evidence Code Section 1202, in relevant part, states any evidence offered to attack or support the credibility of the declarant is admissible if it would have been admissible had the declarant been a witness at the hearing. So, if the defense seeks to introduce a statement from a person as like a spontaneous statement or a declaration against interest, we can impeach that statement with the declarant's prior felony conviction of moral turpitude or with misconduct of moral turpitude. Does that hold true if a defendant introduces part of his own statement under Evidence Code Section 356 after the prosecution introduces part of the defendant's statement, even if the defendant's intention was to prevent a partial admission of his statement from being misleading? Yes. For example, in a case called People v. Jacobs from 2000, a co-defendant moved to introduce a limited portion of Jacobs' statement, which exonerated the co-defendant. Jacobs objected to only a limited portion being admitted because it made it seem like he was guilty and his co-defendant wasn't. So Jacobs successfully introduced his entire statement under the rule of completeness, which is uh, embodied in Evidence Code Section 356. After the entirety of the defendant's statements to the police were admitted, the trial court then allowed the prosecution under Evidence Code Section 1202 to introduce evidence of the defendant's prior felony convictions to impeach the credibility of his exculpatory hearsay statement, even though the defendant did not testify. And the Court of Appeal 
said it was proper to use Section 1202 in this way. And Jacobs held that even if Section 1202 was inapplicable, the defendant's prior convictions were still admissible to impeach his hearsay statement under Article 1, Section 28, Subdivision F of the California Constitution, uh, what we've been talking about earlier, Proposition 8, subject to Evidence Code Section 352. And still more recently, in a case called People v. Little, an officer testified about a defendant's inculpatory statements. The defense counsel cross-examined the officer and elicited testimony about the defendant's exculpatory statements. The defendant didn't testify, but the trial court granted the prosecution's motion to impeach the defendant's hearsay statements with his prior theft-related conviction. That was also upheld on appeal, and Little also agreed with Jacob's conclusion that the evidence was admissible because of Prop 8 and its requirement that all relevant evidence uh, be admitted. Could a prosecutor introduce a defendant's statement as an admission and then impeach it with his prior conviction? All right. Well, that's probably going a little bit too far. Uh, I suspect it wouldn't fly. And uh, there's a case there from 2007 called People versus Fritz that uh, strongly indicates that that would not be permitted. You don't get to introduce the defendant's confession just so that you can also get out the fact that he's got these prior felony convictions. And by the way, all these cases I just mentioned – They're all included in the accompanying handout. So let's say the defendant takes the stand and we want to impeach him or her with misconduct that underlies a pending criminal case. Can the defendant then refuse to answer questions about the pending case based on the privilege against self-incrimination? If the court allowed us to ask the questions over a 352 objection, the refusal would probably result in the defendant's entire testimony being stricken. A defendant who takes the stand to testify in his own behalf waives his privilege against self-incrimination to the extent of the scope of relevant cross-examination. There's a California Supreme Court case called uh, People v. Kaufman where the court held a defendant couldn't assert a privilege as to a separate pending murder where questioning about that murder was relevant to contradict his testimony he didn't want to kill anybody. What about when the shoe is on the other foot? Say we have a crucial prosecution witness with pending charges that involve crimes of moral turpitude. Um, for example, a witness with a pending robbery charge in a murder case. Would the witness be able to assert the Fifth Amendment privilege? Yes, unless we granted immunity. Is there something we could do short of immunity to get that witness's testimony in, or is a grant of immunity our only option? It's definitely not our only option. In fact, it should be an option of last resort. Remember that ultimately, whether or not this information is going to be coming in to impeach our prosecution witness is subject to a court's discretion to admit or not admit. Um, We can stipulate that the witness has been arrested and charged with the pending robbery with the understanding that the witness will not then be asked about the underlying facts. Or we can even stipulate to what the witnesses to the pending prosecution would attest to. So the defense gets essentially, if not more, then the full probative value of the evidence without the prosecution witness having to invoke the Fifth Amendment. Won't a defense attorney argue they can't be forced to accept a stipulation that deprives evidence of its persuasiveness? Uh, They might, but what a court should and is likely to say is that for impeachment purposes, the underlying facts are not more persuasive than the stipulation, and in any event, letting the defense get into the underlying facts would be unduly time-consuming. So using their ability under 352 to exclude or admit 
they should be saying, well, because this stipulation accomplishes your goal, I'm going to exercise my 352 powers to say, look, if you want to impeach, the way to do it is by way of stipulation. If you want to do it some other way, I think the prejudicial value outweighs the probative value. Or the court could simply allow impeachment with proof of the robbery itself and again, allow the defense to bring in the witnesses to prove the robbery while preventing them from asking the witness about it. All these options would allow the witness to testify without having to invoke the fifth. Well, Jeff, I think my brain is full. Perhaps it's a good time to wrap up this podcast on impeachment and bid our intrepid audience adieu. Okay, as my son likes to say, I'm totally down with that. So until next time, adieu.